All right, we're back here now with my good friend Chuck Rocha <laughs> joining us here today in the studio. Hey, Chuck, how are you? Welcome back to KZEY. <laughs> Jeff, I'm fully prepared to allow you to lead the rest of this interview if you so desire. Hey, Chuck, we know you're a big fisherman down there. You love to go down to Florida and all over the place. Been down to Cuba fishing. Tell us about your favorite fishing trip, Chuck. The waves are rolling down here in South Florida today, <laughs> and people are on the water. They are getting out and going fishing. Everyone's a personality. That's Jeff Weaver and Chuck Rocha, senior advisors to the Bernie 2020 campaign. Have you done radio? Because I know that Senator Sanders has this history of doing radio, being involved with media, having an album. No, you were never tempted? No. But I could have, don't you think? It's never too late. I have a face for radio, Rihanna. I think I'm doing just fine. I need people to take a lot of pictures of me. Lots of pictures of me. You guys, if there was a better encapsulation of your personalities than that, then I don't know what it is. This week, I'm talking to folks who knew Bernie way back when to get some insight into the man who's defined principally by his principles. This is Hear the Burn, a podcast about the people, ideas, and politics that are driving the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign and the movement to secure a dignified life for everyone living in this country. My name is Brianna Joy Gray, coming to you this time from campaign headquarters in Washington, D.C. For this week's episode, I chatted with David Sirota, an investigative journalist who has known Senator Sanders for 20 years and who was the first person ever to hold the title Bernie Sanders speechwriter. But first, I talked to senior advisor Jeff Weaver, solo, about the 30-plus years he's known the senator. Chuck joins us about halfway through. So I met Bernie back in the spring of 1986. I had been thrown out of college for anti-apartheid protesting. I was kicking around uh, in Vermont, and he was running for governor as an independent. He was mayor of Burlington. And I called down to the campaign headquarters, and a guy named Phil Fermante, who's also a recently retired, longtime Bernie guy, uh, came up to meet with me. And I, I should have known something was wrong because when he left, I was the county coordinator for a gubernatorial campaign in Vermont, having no campaign experience whatsoever. <laughs> anyway, I was staffing Bernie at uh, a dairy festival, something we have in Vermont. My job was to sort of hand him, hold a sign, a Bernie sign on a stick, and hand him these buttons, Bernie buttons, which he would go around and offer folks at the Dairy Festival and every place else. So anyway, uh, he seemed to, we seemed to hit it off, and a couple of days later he called me and said, hey, would you like to work a couple of days a week in Burlington? And that was 1986, and here we are today. When you say we seem to hit it off, do you remember what it was about your interaction that kind of gelled? I sort of had a good sense of what he needed when he needed it, like when do you need a button, I, you know, I was not, I was not. <laughs> That's all it takes. <laughs> yeah, no, look, I, like, I, I, I was very mission oriented and mm-hmm. I think he appreciated that. So then you got on board with the campaign. Can I you, did. Can you tell us what that was like? Yeah, so it was a very small campaign, let's say that. There was two of us. Uh, I drove Bernie around mostly and I was paid in uh, mileage. That's how I was paid. <laughs> so I was essentially a volunteer getting mileage, let's be clear. <laughs> And he and I would just drive around the state. I lived about 30 miles north of where Bernie lived in Burlington. He lived in Burlington. And I would pick him up at about 7.30 in the morning. So I would leave my house about 7, get there at 7.30, and drop him back off at his house at 11.30 or 12 at night and drive half an hour north. And the next morning, pick him back up at 7.30, and off we'd go again day after day after day after day. This is really resonating with me because I also met 
and spoke for the first time to Bernie Sanders on a long car ride. (laughs) (laughs) A three-hour trip, a reporting trip I went on, um, which I rode in the car with him from Memphis, Tennessee to Jackson, Mississippi to commemorate the 50-year anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination around this time last year. And I didn't hand on any buttons or facilitate in any way, but it appears to have gone well as you must well. Have, and maybe you're, you're very mission-oriented. <laughs> maybe. maybe that's what it was. <laughs> maybe. So I think that what is really curious to a lot of listeners probably is that because Bernie himself is so message-oriented. There's almost this reluctance, it seems, for him to talk about his personal life and foreground those things that some other candidates, you know, tend to do to for, for you know, reasonable reasons, to want to appear affable, to want to appear relatable. Bernie doesn't do that. And I think that that's frankly part of his charm, that he seems so committed to ide- ideals as opposed to kind of persona. But still... Even acknowledging that's the case, there is this like mysteriousness about him, I think. And so I think people want to know from you, you know, who is Bernie Sanders? Like, what is he like when he's relaxed behind closed doors, not needing to evangelize about Medicare for all? You know, what's the small talk like between you? Yeah, well, and you should know, uh, you know, I worked for him in 86, 88 and 90 when he won one for Congress. And I came down with him then. And over the course of that, those three campaigns, I calculated one time that I had spent the equivalent of 365 24-hour days wow. with Bernie in the car. Wow. So he and I have spent a lot of time in the car together. He is in some ways very different and in some ways not different. So there's a lot of conversation about politics mm-hmm. and what's going on. Uh, but he also has an incredibly dry sense of humor, mm-hmm. which you know we really hit it off in that way. We used to do this thing called Honkamania. And Honkamania was uh, when we had time in the schedule, we would stop at the busiest intersection. And in Vermont, some of those intersections were not too busy, but there were some busy <laughs> intersections. And uh, we would get out, I would hold a sign, and then we would he would wave at the cars. And what we uh, turned into a game, because at first, you know, not too many people knew him, but then as he was getting more famous, you know, people would wave and what have you, give us other signs, sometimes mm-hmm. not positive. I remember the time we were mooned by a guy in the five corners in Essex Junction. That was pretty funny. Uh, <laughs> but, but so we started only counting honks, and we would have a, our own competition where over like a four or five-minute period, we would count the number of honks that we would get from cars. <laughs> when you would get start to get this flurry, this sort of crescendo of honks, Bernie would scream out in this sort of dr- dramatic, drawn-out way, Honkamania! <laughs> Wait, wait, okay. So I need, I need to know what you were exactly doing to try to elicit these honks. So I, would, I wasn't doing much. I would hold the sign, and Bernie would wave, and he would, he would almost try to catch people's, like, personal attention and wave to get a response <laughs> back from them. But we didn't want just waves because we didn't count those because we were getting too many waves. It had to be a honk. A honk. Right. Yeah. Hence the name. You're honk. a purist. Honkamania. <laughs> well, you know, every game has rules. And that was those were the rules of Honkamania. Honks only. Uh, so we did Honkamania a lot in 86 and 88. Yeah, it was a good... <laughs> good, good years. <laughs> those were the good years when we were in our Honkamania prime. So so you're someone who has dealt with the, the comic world, who has a comic business, a, co- a comic selling business. You obviously engage with pop culture. You're out here with these William Shatner, Boston legal references. I mean, do you and the senator ever talk about movies or TV or does he have a favorite band? 
Yeah, well, we've talked about comic books, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. He and his brother used to collect comic books when they were in New York. Is he a Marvel or a DC guy? No, he was a DC guy. Uh, I mean, well, I mean. Oh, that could be. <laughs> you know, back in the day, it was, of course, it was not Marvel. I don't know how far down this rabbit hole you want to go, but I mean. it was timely uh, before there was Marvel. And he was definitely a DC guy. And definitely, he's answered this question many times publicly, the Superman versus Batman question. Mm-hmm. Definitely Superman. Who would win in a fight, Batman or Superman? Oh, my goodness, no question. Superman all the way. Why? Why? Because he have much more powers. Yeah, because, I mean, Batman's the rich guy. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. He uses money right. to be a vigilante. <laughs> right. You know, Superman is the interplanetary orphan who, mm. you know, seemingly powerless, but, you know, actually a being of great power. Hmm. And you think that resonates for Bernie Sanders for a particular reason? I don't I don't know. I saw a program one time where they analogized Superman to the sort of FDR uh, New Deal coming in to break up local corruption. I don't know if that's true or not, but maybe that's how it resonated. It's hard to, without feeling, I think, invasive, to try to get to the core of what another person is like, right? Like as, as someone who's your friend, you don't want to be disclosing things that they've chosen obviously not to disclose but i wonder how you feel about bernie's choice not to foreground his personal life and whether there have been moments where you felt like he should do more of that the issue with bernie you know this is an issue that bernie has with the media actually which he expresses publicly often you know the ideas that he expresses i mean now they're very popular right everybody's for medicare for all seemingly everybody's for free tuition uh, you know public colleges and universities mm-hmm. and so on and so on and so forth right but for so long, decades and decades and decades, he was one of the only voices on these mm-hmm. issues. And I think he really did not want to what, – what in his view would have been waste time that he has with people talking about himself when he could be talking about these particular issues. And, you know, given his success, maybe he was right. I think that's right. I perhaps subscribe to a bit of a, the spoonful of sugar philosophy where I do think a little – Pop culture and silliness can help the medicine go down. <laughs> no, no, I, I agree with that. I mean, you know, and I, 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 no, I agree with that. I agree with that. But I, you know, I do think that, you know, he does think take these you know issues very seriously. Always has, and does feel like there is not enough discussion of them broadly speaking, and that he, he sort of alone has to fill that void in many ways. When you met, you said you had just been kicked out of college for apartheid protesting. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. So, you know, this was in the 80s, and it was a very busy time. I was in Boston at Boston University, which at that time, the president of the university was a far right-wing guy named John Silber. There was a lot of uh, anti-apartheid activity. He, he, in fact, was a supporter of the apartheid regime, frankly, uh, kind of unapologetic. Hmm. Uh, and so we tried to build a shantytown, uh, which was a common sort of protest activity in that time period. Uh, and most universities, when students built a shantytown and lived in it, they would just leave it up and knew that over some period of time it would go away. So they, mm-hmm. but that was not Boston University. So as soon as we started putting two pieces of wood together, the Boston University police were there. They arrested a bunch of people. I was not initially arrested. And then a bunch of us blocked the police cars that had our counterparts in it. And uh, then we were, then we were arrested. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually I knew a lot of the police officers because I worked at a local movie theater and they did security after hours there. So I knew many of them. I was. It was uh, a little bit of a small time operation on their part. They ran out of handcuffs and and zip ties, so I was I was zip tied. But my friend with me in the back of the police car was not. He was just 
trusted on his own, at least he, on his own reconnaissance, he, as he, they he, say. He, he was not. At that time, I was a, a young smoker, and I asked if I could smoke in the back seat, and he said, fine. And so my friend held my cigarette in the back of the police car as we <laughs> tr- drove to the police station. So you were, you were like Bernie Sanders, a young person with very kind of fully foreign <laughs> politics, it seems, who was, who was acting on your beliefs in a way that you know, a lot of us don't do, at least until we get a little bit older. And I'm curious whether that's something that you and Sanders talked about or bonded over when you first met in Vermont. So, you know, we talked about it some. He did not, I did not know the full extent of his own sort of civil rights background at that mm-hmm. particular time. In fact, I learned a lot more about it in 2016 along with the rest mm-hmm. of America because despite all the time we spent together, you know, it really was not, I mean, he mentioned it a few times, but it was not a, a, a deep topic of conversation mm, for so us. Interesting. So interesting. Yeah, he's not really uh, boastful in that sort of way. That's just really not his uh, style. You know, that was obviously a pivotal moment. Uh, for him and his uh, life. Uh, you know, he's also spoken more recently about, uh, you know, his uh, Jewish heritage mm-hmm. and the impact of the Holocaust on his family and himself emotionally. Because my father came from Poland at the age of 17 without a nickel in his pocket, without knowing one word of English. He came to the United States to escape the crushing poverty that existed in his community and to escape widespread anti-Semitism. And it was a good thing that he came to this country because virtually his entire family was wiped out by Hitler and Nazi barbarism. You know, all of us learning a little bit more about Bernie and, uh, you know, I think it's good, but I don't think, I don't think he's ever going to move away from being a person whose primary focus is talking about policies that affect other people and not talking about himself. I want to bring in Chuck Rocha, another campaign um, senior advisor, and talk to you both a little bit about your experiences with Bernie more recently on these last couple of campaigns. Sounds great. So Chuck, you're also a senior advisor. Can you tell people who might not be as familiar with you or your background a little bit about yourself? My background is pretty simple. I grew up in East Texas, like every other redneck around East Texas. What they don't realize and what a lot of your listeners won't realize is I sound like a really old white man from East Texas when I'm actually Mexican from East Texas. Uh, my mother's actually white and my father's family's from Guanajuato, Mexico. Uh, my father left at a young age and my mother's father, my grandfather, who me and Jeff always talk about, who was my papa, raised me. So I was raised on a working farm. So I got to envision America in probably the most holistic way of any young man, because I was raised a generation ago by a grandfather who drove a tractor every day, who worked in the fields every day. And those values is what I still hold close to me every day. And it's actually the values that drew me to Bernie Sanders for the very first time is somebody who works with their hands, somebody who's been out there. Me and Jeff couldn't be from more different parts of the country, literally on each end of the country, but we're so similar because we grew up in such rural areas with such humble beginnings. And that's what drove him to Bernie Sanders. That's what made me be a part of Bernie Sanders and being being able to be a senior advisor with Jeff is like coming back home because you get to work with your family. You get to work for a value set that you really believe in. I just want to cut in to note that Chuck got into politics via his union, a path fewer and fewer people are taking as union membership is down from a high of nearly 35% of all wage and salary workers in 1954 to just 11% today. 
Note that there is a direct relationship between low union membership and the share of income, which is going to the top 10%. I went to work in a factory when I was 19, joined the union by happenstance because everybody else did, got active in the union, uh, became an officer of my local union when I was 22, went on to become the national political director of one of the biggest industrial unions in North America, the Steelworkers, and uh, that was the best job I ever had till I left 10 years ago to start my own firm. So Chuck, I want to ask you, how long ago did you meet Bernie? Bernie always loves to tell the story that it was in a Chinese restaurant like 15 years ago when I was the political director and I was with the international president of the union. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said this to me just like three weeks ago in a private meeting him and me and him were having. We were like, you remember when we first met? <laughs> we were in a Chinese restaurant. He always says we were in a Chinese restaurant because <laughs> we were talking to Bernie probably about trade, mm-hmm. probably about trying to save some manufacturing jobs. That's normally what we were talking to Bernie about because he was such a champion for us. Mm-hmm. And he'd been a champion for our union, right? So we would go to Bernie and have these private conversations to kind of strategize how we could save these American manufacturing jobs. And he always would have input. But I was a young political director, didn't know who Bernie Sanders was, probably couldn't have found Vermont on a map. <laughs> and he was just, he did we kind of we had a special connection at least that's what he tells me I've always felt close to Bernie but he's like I remember you then and he said you were good then and you're good now and I'm like well I'll take that any day so do you remember anything about why you think it was you guys hit it off I know because he reminds me of my grandfather like my grandfather was the strongest man I knew like he was a slight man Mm -hmm. like anybody who knows me for 30 seconds I'm this big overgrown bolsterous Mexican but my father my grandfather was this little white man who was tougher than me was stronger than me was meaner than me and like he could pick (laughs) He could pick two rows of peas to my one, and I was a 17-year-old boy. That's the way I look at Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is twice my age, but outworks me every day, has more energy than I will ever have. And I think that was the was the was the draw of like how is this man Chuck, so- Chuck don't flatter yourself he's not twice your age is he, is he, oh my god he's not twice my age he is quite older than me but not twice my age who can outwork me every single day having gotten such big personalities in the recording studio I couldn't resist asking Chuck and Jeff for some of their best Bernie stories from back in the day but as it turns out there really isn't a public and private Bernie what you see is largely what you get. People think that they that somebody who's been as successful and it's as popular, to be honest, as Bernie Sanders is, that he would be different than he is. But he's really not, and he's even more humble than he comes across on stage. Mm. I was with him, and Jeff wasn't on this trip with me in Las Vegas to speak to the Machinist Union just a couple of weeks ago when we were headed back to the airport. We had like three hours. And Bernie, again, to the food thing, he's like, we should get something to eat before we go to the airport. Mm-hmm. And there's, you're in Las Vegas, right? You're in you have the, most, the best food in the world, some of the best chefs in the world. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, we're going to go get a fancy hamburger somewhere. Like, that's going to be really good. <laughs> and Bernie's like, maybe we could find an IHOP. <laughs> and I'm like, we're in Las Vegas, and we're now Googling the nearest IHOP, which in Las Vegas, just so you know, is only about a mile from the airport on the backside of the Las Vegas Strip, again, in the middle of a strip mall. So we walk into the IHOP with Bernie Sanders, rolling again like 10 people deep. And the people again, like, oh, my God, it's Bernie Sanders. So they were so kind to us. There were people waiting. They found us a table, and we went and sat. But the, the, the thing that all of us have seen happen on the road with him is the first thing is the manager comes over, thank you for coming. And Bernie's very humble, like, yeah, yeah. And he orders two eggs, two pieces of toast, and two pieces of bacon. Like, it's just that's what he wants to have for breakfast. Well done. Well done. Well done. Well Absolutely. done. Yeah, yeah. No pancakes? No pancakes. No pancakes. No, no. <laughs> But then the people from the back, right, like the folks who are working, that's who Bernie wants to talk to. Mm-hmm. Like when they come out, he more so than the manager, who he, he respected and it showed you know a lot of commonality with. But when the workers comes out, he lights up. 
to Jeff's point, that's who he wants to hear from. That's where he wants to hear the stories, right? And people are talking to him on his way out, and they're saying that they caucus for him last time, which me as a consultant are like, excuse me, let me ask you a few more questions. I'm trying to run my own little focus group, right? Mm -hmm. But Bernie just wants to interact. He wants that one-on-one communication with regular people doing regular jobs who feel like, you know, like my granddaddy, who they've been forgotten about. It was heartening to hear that perspective from two people who had known Bernie Sanders for so long, that the authenticity we all love is consistent and perhaps even deeper than we imagine. We were looking at office space, and I remember walking into offices all over D.C. and Northern Virginia and places, trying to find a place for us to set up a headquarters, Mm -hmm. right? And after like the third building, to Jeff's credit, because he knows the senator, he pulled me to the side and he's like, all of these places are just way too nice. (laughs) He's like, we do not need a a campaign office that's got marble in the foyer. He's like, the senator will not like this. He goes, can you tell the real estate we won't level C or D buildings? No A's or B's. And I just thought that was the best thing ever. (laughs) But I was curious to talk to David Sirota to get a somewhat different perspective. It's one thing to work alongside a person, but it's another to try to capture his voice as a speechwriter. That requires a perceptiveness, a kind of close study that most of us don't apply to the everyday people in our lives. What, I wondered, had David gleaned in both his professional capacity and in his personal relationship with the senator over the last couple of decades? I've told people that Bernie is not like uh, Ron Burgundy from Anchorman. I mean, you know, <laughs> that scene in one of my favorite movies where they say, don't put it that on the, tele- on the teleprompter because he'll read anything off the teleprompter. Like, that is not Bernie Sanders. <laughs> like, so that is not our speech writing process. Bernie still writes his speeches. I mean, I, I, in some ways, the title speechwriter is a little bit of a misnomer in that it's like speech supporter, mm. like speech helper. Mm-hmm. What I try to do is we have a set of speeches on you know this or that issue. I try to get him the information that he needs that he's going to put into his own voice. I mean, I try to get it into his voice, but he's got a very unique voice. He knows exactly how he wants to say things. So I'm there to help get the research and the material that he needs to to put into uh, his voice. And the thing is, is that his speeches, if you listen to them, they are very fact-driven. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's not it's not a lot of rhetorical flourish. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, this is almost, it's not a, not exactly a research paper, but like here are literal facts that, that I'm telling you about the country. And, and, and in, in a sense, it's actually what we call in journalism, it's showing, not telling. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what he's really focused on. It's been successful for him. Can you talk a little bit about when you first met Senator Sanders and where your relationship started? Sure. It was the year 1999. <laughs> so I was... Uh, basically just out of college. Uh, I'd worked on a couple campaigns and I had sent a resume, a bunch of resumes around to Capitol Hill. And back then they wouldn't tell you who you were applying to. They would do these ads in, in like roll call in the Hill and they hmm. would say, um, they would describe a congressperson. They would say, you know, um, Northeastern Democrat or Western Republican or huh. whatever. And, and I remember, I, so I sent my resume all over Capitol Hill to a bunch of different offices. And I get a call from Jeff Weaver. 
and he says, I'm calling from uh, Congressman Bernie Sanders' office. And I was remember thinking in my mind, wait a minute, I don't remember thinking that I had a, I, I don't, not sure who that is. And <laughs> I, like, and, and, and then I looked him up and he was the independent self-described uh, democratic socialist uh, from Vermont. And I said, wait a minute, I, I, I thought I had only applied to democratic offices. <laughs> and then I looked back at the ad and he had, des- it was described as a, I think it was a, a progressive Northeastern member. It wasn't a democratic Northeastern member. And so I go in and I meet with uh, Jeff Weaver. To be honest, after I met with Bernie, and it was a great meeting, um, the night before I, I, you know, they offered me the job. And the night before I took the job, I remember thinking, um, what's it going to be like to work for a self-described democratic socialist <laughs> in, in Congress? Is it going to be, uh, you know, is it, how is he going to be able to work with, with the Democrats? And is it going to be, you know, super isolating? And, mm-hmm. and, and I will say it was, it, you know, I kind of got over my fears and went to work for him. And it was one of the best experiences of my whole life because working in the Congress for an independent like Bernie is a completely unique experience. In, in what way? In that you're, you get to see the Congress and how it works from somebody who is something of an outsider mm-hmm. as opposed to a just standard party guy. The whole office's attitude was different. I mean, we worked, when I was there, we worked with very conservative members of Congress. Mm-hmm. We worked with very progressive members of Congress. Um, Bernie was seen as somebody who worked well with other members of Congress, but also was seen as somebody who could forge these left-right coalitions. Mm-hmm. There were a bunch of articles in his 2016 campaign that were written about how he became what was called the the amendment king right. of the House, which was where he would do these coalitions where he would have very conservative Republicans and very progressive Democrats coming together on a transpartisan issue mm-hmm. you know, in, in, a, in a way that where there was there was really no party. So, for example, the bus trips to Canada. Um, I was on. Uh, I think it was the first. Or, I think it was the first bus trip that a member of Congress did to Canada with with, um, constituents to go purchase lower-priced prescription drugs. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was an issue in which we had very conservative Republicans who were super free trade people with us, working with us on that drug importation issue with very progressive members of Congress. That was a a good example of that. Some people have caught on to the fact that he's talking more about his personal story. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important thing to do in that I think it's important for the public to know that he's not a machine. He's not a robot. That what he is for comes out of a lived experience. Like me, David Sirota worked as a journalist before joining the campaign. A fact that not everyone has been super excited about. So I wanted to pick his brain about that transition and how he's handled the media response. Moving out of journalism to come back to work for Bernie Sanders 20 years after I had worked for him was a difficult decision for me because I knew that I was leaving behind a set of skills that I had worked really hard to try to become good at, which is you know investigative journalism. And I think the reason I decided ultimately to do it was that I think that the country and the world is in a place right now, facing crises right now, that 
the most direct action possible to solve those crises is absolutely positively necessary in an immediate sense because of things like climate change and the economic crisis and that given the opportunity to work in a very direct way on those things was worth the sacrifice of leaving journalism. To be clear, not to say that journalism isn't addressing those crises, but for me personally, this was an even more direct way to do it. And I did it. And I, you know, some people criticized me for that. I knew, I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, just a few people criticized me for that. But you know what? I don't have any regrets. I mean, do I miss journalism every now and again? Yes. Uh, do I like yeah. being criticized all the time because I went back to work for Bernie Sanders? No, I don't, I don't like that. But you know what? I have young kids who are relying on us to actually solve the problems that threaten their future. And so if that's the price of of me trying to help with that cause, then that's the price we pay. Yeah, I mean, I I've, I feel very similarly. I, did, I don't obviously have the lengthy career that I was offering kind of up on the pyre, as it were. But, you know, what I reflected on was the fact that I was only a writer because I had started writing in response to the political context of 2016. I was an attorney sitting at my desk, tweeting to my 100 followers about how angry I was and how I was being erased because the, you know I'm a black woman being called a Bernie bro and told that I'm literally a fake person or that I'm a white person or that I'm a Russian bot and all these things. And then I started to write about that experience and write about the way identity was being weaponized at that point in time. And then those articles took off. And then, so the idea that at this point, you know, I was writing because of Bernie bias. Well, it's like <laughs> I'm an opinion writer and my political perspective, which is that I am a supporter of left politics, has always been plain. And there's this new kind of phenomenon with with Twitter, with people's personal politics kind of being out there more, particularly in the opinion writing realm, where, you know, there's an argument that I think that I believe in, which says everyone has biases and there is a certain honesty to people being upfront about their politics so that readers have an opportunity to judge as they will how to credit the facts that you're laying out for them. But for my personal decision making was to say, if you're only in this because your real agenda isn't to be a writer or to, you know, to have any career path, but to advance left politics because of the exigent circumstances that we live in that you just described, well, then how could I not do anything and everything I could to advance this project? So... I'm certainly glad that I, I you're here. I completely agree. I mean, the, the, the way to put it, the way I put it is that going from journalism into the kind of politics that we're working in now is not a conflict of interest. It's an alignment of interest. Mm-hmm. In other words, why are you, why was I in journalism? Right. It was to expose injustice. It was to expose corruption. It was to expose unfairness and it was to expose a rigged system. So this campaign is in some ways a traditional political campaign running for an office, but it is a campaign about exposing corruption, right. about challenging economic right. injustice. I don't think it's kind of like a like a U-turn or a betrayal. Right. It's just part of the work that's being done. And I would agree with you on the other point, which is that you're right. Everybody has opinions. Everybody has biases. Nobody is objective. The minute a newspaper says, this is the story we're going to cover and we're not going to cover this story, that is a subjective opinionated decision. I didn't hide the fact that I had worked for Bernie Sanders when I was a journalist. And I guess my, my point is, is that, look, 
ultimately, the question is whether you're in politics or journalism, why are you in politics mm-hmm. or journalism? Are you in there to see your right. byline and lights? Are you in there to, you know, one day get some great job that you think will make you feel good? Or are you <laughs> in it to actually solve the problems, the emergencies that are at hand? And right. I think that's what this campaign is really all about. And I think that's what Bernie Sanders has been all about. And I, and I, don't, I really don't think there's actually much of an argument that that's not true. That's it for this week. Let us know what you think at HearTheBurn at BernieSanders.com or send us a tweet with the hashtag HearTheBurn. If you haven't already, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you're listening. As always, transcripts will be up soon. Till next week. Would you like to add to that? Well, about the dress, it's just, it's for... It, it shows the way you feel, you know? Like, people wear black because they're not feeling too good about what's going on around them. Like, some of the stuff that goes on in this society, you know, is basically baloney. Well, thank you very much for your forthright views. Okay? See ya.